0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Aparna Gopalan, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Ravinder Kaur about her new book, Brand New Nation, Capitalist Dreams and Nationalist Designs in 21st Century India. This book came out with Stanford University Press in 2020. It is a 21st century common sense that India is an emerging economy. But how did this common sense emerge? How did India's global image shift from that of a poverty-infested third-world country to that of a frontier of boundless economic opportunity? In this nimbly researched and lucidly narrated book, Professor Kaur tracks the over two decades of mega publicity campaigns which have gone into producing Brand India as a desirable commodity for global investors. What can government and corporate-sponsored media campaigns like India Shining in 2004 and Lead India in 2009 tell us about the resounding success of the post-2014 Ache Din or Good Days campaign that we are still living with today? How do cultural nationalism and capitalist growth together produce images of a modern India, which is nevertheless rooted in Hindu antiquity? How does the figure of the Aam or the common man, and the 2011 anti-corruption campaign that this figure became associated with, become yet another locus from which entrepreneurship and free markets can once again be championed? We talked, talked about all this and more in our conversation. Please give it a listen, and I hope you enjoy it. Professor Kaur, welcome to the program. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you. Um, So to begin with, we would like to uh, ask you about your background. What brought you to the academic study of modern South Asia in general and of India's 21st century image-making campaigns in particular?
0: Uh, Thank you so much, Aparna. Uh, I think I'll begin by saying that my background is in history, And from history, I moved into international politics. And this is happening both at Delhi University and JNU. So with this interdisciplinary background, uh, I think I have been able to uh, formulate my research questions, which are very interdisciplinary in nature. And much of the methodology that I've been using is very ethnographic and the study of 21st century i think is uh, this is a moment of transformation in uh, post colonial india's history and often it is disciplines of sociology and anthropology uh, that would more focus on the present whereas historians don't uh, so much focus uh, on this present era but what i found was that if we were to write the history of this transformation that would necessarily mean uh, building bridges across disciplines and methodologies. So this is what I think um, I, I'm not sure I would have been able to even conceive such uh, a project which is uh, a historical ethnography uh, if I did not have this interdisciplinary background. Great.
1: Um, yeah, that the interdisciplinarity of your work definitely comes through throughout um, throughout the book and the arguments you're able to make in it. Um, so to just begin, to give our listeners a bit more of um, a sense of what the book covers, um, the book opens with your observations from the World Economic Forum in Davos, um, where you found yourself surrounded by images and invocations of brand India, and, um, what is Brand India in these global investment contexts? And um, how does it emerge? Why does it emerge? And um, in what sense is it is it a nation branding project?
0: So, of course, my journey to Davos, where the book begins, it does not begin there. The book begins in Delhi, or let's put it this way, it begins in transnational spaces, where you are both in India and outside it, that you watch some transformation, some change taking place uh, around the idea that we imagine as India. So this begins with, uh, okay, let me explain first what is Brand India. I'm here speaking specifically also of a government agency called India Brand Equity Foundation, which is uh, a partnership between the Ministry of Commerce and Confederation of Indian Industries, which is uh, a lobby organization for um, uh, the Indian capital. And uh, this India Brand Equity Foundation has its origins in the Indian economic reforms, uh, 1990s reforms. Um, and it was charged initially to um, sell made in India products abroad. But over a period of, of some years, it changed its focus into branding India itself as an investment destination. And you can see how it has evolved eventually into many different programs, including Make in India, where India is imagined as factory of the world. So this is, this is the broader background where, uh, uh, that we, I'm uh, addressing in this book. But it began with not so much with the actual bureaucratic structures, which I ended up exploring, but rather something else, namely imagery or artwork uh, that began floating around the world about India. And this is uh, many years ago. Um, I, I distinctly remember it was the 60th anniversary of India's independence. At that time, somehow India's discourse, or how India was imagined in the outside world, begin shifting. It took a dramatic turn uh, that India was being celebrated as this rising nation, emerging power, uh, and so on and so forth. And this was doing one or two things. One was that it was completely disengaged from the India-Pakistan hyphenated relationship uh, that has always defined India in the world, outside. Now it was being rehyphenated with India, with China, India China. And this was basically the whole discourse of the Asian century, the emerging market century. So India had kind of moved into a different sphere. And the first and foremost indication of this change was happening in not just in the government offices, but also happening in the public sphere where India was being imagined and recreated in entirely different ways. So the book that I have tried to organize or arrange is uh, taking the mega publicity campaigns as a point of entry. Now, most people who know India or who have been to India, they begin the journeys uh You know, with by filling up forms, and often, you know, they are stamped with Incredible India uh, stamp. And as you know, Incredible India was one of the first mega campaigns which uh, tried to redesign India uh, in the image of the in eyes of the world, right? So, I think these broader changes uh, that I have been trying to capture uh, the making of brand India and here we are on one hand speaking of a specific agency, government agency, but also the notion that India is a commodity, commodity which can be displayed and sold. You can come and invest, make profit. So basically the selling point of India is its profitability. And that basically means rearranging the entire nation uh, in so many different ways. So this is the brand that we are speaking about. And in the book, of course, I mentioned that uh, the origins of this branding idea that nations or invest, uh, destinations can be uh, branded, this is something which, is, which comes out from the late 20th century. Uh, you know, when uh, uh, the Berlin Wall has fallen, Soviet Union has been dismantled, and the whole idea that the world is opening up, it is in that moment that we can locate that uh, nations are invited to take part, to open themselves up, to to open them to private capital. And uh, India actually is one of the prime actors in this game. Uh, uh, And it has, uh, actually, I would say it is one of the leading actors uh, in this game.
1: Hmm. One thing that might be really useful to clarify for our listeners is, Um, an argument that you make very early on in the book where you talk about how um, post-1991 reform era India is um, in, you know, common tropes seen as a place where the state is receding or has receded, um, has been replaced by um, market actors. And what you're showing is that the branding is not happening outside of the state. It's a state agency that's doing the branding, right? Um, Hmm. What is that? How does that matter?
0: I think think maybe we should begin by the idea of the free market. When in India, what I have noticed is, of course, free market is not an Indian idea as such. It's something which happens globally. But what you can see that one of the distinct uh, variations that you see in India is that uh, free market or open market somehow is interpreted as absence of the state. So many times when I would speak to people who are part of this, uh, you know, policy people or advertising branding people, they would all repeat somehow the same um, idea that everything which is happening in India is happening not because of the government, but despite the government, right? So it is uh, somehow like absence of the state uh, was very prominent in uh, in this discourse. But as you have rightly pointed out, That much of what is taking place uh, is happening through government agencies. So there is this discursive contradiction, which, you know, tension which happens throughout uh, that, uh, where uh, on one hand, uh, you know, state is wished away, or on the other hand, it is state which is making this free market happen. The distinction that I was trying to point out to is that uh, in contrast to many other nation states which have uh, opened up for business the free market uh, idea, uh, Indian government has actually not invested or distributed uh, the gains of uh, reforms, so to say, uh, in, um, in a useful manner. So basically, even today, you know, we are speaking about uh, the new reforms which have taken place, uh, the farm bill, and here, once again, the fact that state has decided not to be an actor that in itself is seen as a reform. So this, this, this I think this is very, very important because um, in Western Europe or, um, you know, Euro-America, I mean, state still has a role to play. But in this case, uh, somehow the absence of the state, uh, you know, becomes in itself as a way to say that uh, the market has opened up.
1: Hmm. Ah, it's very interesting that it's the state doing that advertising of itself not being there as well. Um, so um, to get into um, some of the chapters of your book, in the, one of the early chapters, um, you discuss the systematic creation, the bureaucratic creation of what you call an economy of hope. Um, which you uh, explain as a a concerted project through which Indian state and corporate actors come together to package and sell optimism to global investors. Um, This is a very interesting idea. Um, And you highlight it with this just fascinating example of um, a particular advertising moment in which um, there's this campaign campaign Poster which features Christopher Columbus um, and draws connections between that moment in 1492 and contemporary India. So could you um, just briefly explain or uh, talk about that particular image and then how that image relates to this economy of hope?
0: So economy of hope, I think what I'm trying to show is that there is some sort of optimism which is drummed up optimism where you want to sell India to the world as a place of hope and optimism, a place where good news is produced every day. And interestingly, uh, this particular ad that you're talking about, um, this was actually never published, most likely. It is very uncertain whether it actually appeared in newspapers or not. Uh, But it is this very ad which perfectly captures that moment of optimism and hope which was very very dominant in India uh, in, in the first decade of the 21st century. And this moment uh, the ad is very interesting it does not uh, it actually uh, is an old uh, image of Christopher Columbus who's landing on the shores um, of America and The inscription basically reads that uh, the last time we held so much promise, Columbus discovered America. And the title basically is Sail for Our Beautiful Shores. And it rehearses the whole story of Columbus and how he came and how, uh, uh, how India is brimming with opportunities that can be had. And the significance, of course, of invoking Columbus is immediately visible to everyone, that uh, Columbus spent his lifetime uh, looking for India and he never found it. Instead, what he found was uh, the continent of America and which it happens to be the world's largest uh, economy. So the message for investors is that, look, this time you too can take part in the dream, which Columbus was never able to fulfill, that India is the real deal. It isn't America, so come here, and this time you don't even have to look for those, uh, you know, those roots. Here it is. The coordinate, you know, coordinates. You can actually find us. We are leading you in. You are welcome and invited. So, in a way, actually, this perfectly captures the the momentum. Uh, that India, you know, kind of driving India at that time and uh, the promise it's every adjective that you can think about which is promise and hope and optimism of incredibility of how amazing it is so basically you run out so it's basically an image of permanent good news there is no room for anything else in this
1: and one of the most visible examples we have had of this um, advertising of permanent good news, of course, has been the most recent government's, um, the ruling party's Achhedin, um campaign or the campaign which um, says, you know, good days are here. That's the slogan uh, very widely known across India. Um, one of the really important contributions of your work, uh, for me at least, has been to tie that uh, Achaydin publicity campaign all the way back to the India Shining campaign of 2004. Um, and that's a moment um, which is seen as, or that's a campaign which is seen as having been a complete failure um, when the ruling BJP government back then, once again, um, in the lead up to the 2004 elections, um, you know, use this image of India shining um, and this logo to try to um, basically drum up support, and then lost the election. Um, instead of seeing it as a failure, um, the way it's the, the way it's done in the standard assessment, you show how there's actually. A deeper and more profound way in which it is a success, or it was a success, uh, the India Shining campaign. And now that we're sitting in the moment of Achmedin, it seems like that is very true. Um, so, could you just briefly describe for our listeners the 2004 India Shining campaign and um, it, what, the ways in which it actually was a success, despite its overt um, appearance as a failure?
0: I think this is a very good question. Thank you so much um, for mentioning this, because this is something, you know, throughout my research, a lot of people have asked me that, yeah, but what, what does this branding really do? It's not like that India is, you know, it has, you know, become materially different or, but I think The more, you know, another way to look at uh, these things is not in immediate returns that a given action can produce, but rather the long term effects uh, it has. And in this case, the 2004, uh, three and four, uh, you know, campaigning, both electoral uh, and different public campaigns like India Shining, which took place at the time, are tremendously important to remember as we all remember they were turned as failures and uh, it was failure primarily because the government lost elections but what you could see uh, not at that time but a little later is that how profoundly it changed india and the change that i'm mentioning here is that uh, india shining campaign was um, very critical in popularizing or publicizing uh, the good that economic reforms could do to you. And by you, I mean, uh, you know, the way one imagines common man, Amatmi. And the entire imagery produced in India Shining was of middle-class or low middle-class people who were aspiring, who were ambitious, but now opportunities had opened for them too. So the imagery was of a good time, which was just here for you. And that kind of, so what you see is that reforms until that point had been something which specialists discussed, something which economists or, you know, number crunchers would sit and do. But what India Shining did was something totally different, that it drew this image of progress and prosperity of a new India, which people had only heard about, but now they could also witness in in images. So this is a critical turning point, I would say. And therefore, I would say that when we think about uh, historical shifts which take place, then often, what seems at first, a setback or a failure need not be so. What is happening here is a long term Uh, shift which has taken place, and I would say that a figure like Modi could have not made such a foothold uh, the way he has, had it not been for these massive shifts which were taking place in India. So I would say Modi is a product of the economic reforms um, which started in 1990s.
1: Um so one more thing which is really interesting about all the things you just mentioned um, is the ways in which this moment of India shining has been it's it's a break with previous representations of India and yet it is an iteration in a longer history of um, casting India as a new India. Um, so what is the ways in which, uh what are the ways in which india shining or kind of the post reform um, advertising of india globally um what are the ways in which that is new um and what are the continuities from all the way up to colonial era as you show
0: i think new as we learned i mean you know when i began my research um and i looked into uh library basis what The key term, New India, I was struck that uh, it already went back to mid-19th century, and which uh, only made my task more difficult because now I also had to look at the origins of this notion of New India. And then I could see that uh, what we thought uh, a term which belonged specifically to 1990s, of course, has a very, very old origin that new continues to appear throughout you know, this period, colonial and post-colonial period. And, of course, each iteration is very different from uh, another. And what begin first as uh, association of new India as, uh, uh, you know, like linkages with the social reform movement, for instance, or uh, uh, cleansing the ills uh, in the colony, or later on to identify with Uh, once again the reformist thought or planning for an independent India or later on uh, when India became independent it was indeed hailed as a new India. So at each moment we are looking at different uh, ideas being uh, aligned with this notion of the new. Here in 1990s it becomes new India something which is uh, particularly connected with economic reforms. And in this case, economy for the first time becomes uh, the instrument of renewal, renewing the nation that, and therefore it is hardly surprising that the language of liberation uh, became so prominent also as, uh, for example, the Anna movement, if you recall, it was simply termed as the second liberation. And liberation, as you know, there is this whole literature in post-colonial uh, history theory, which speaks about second uh, liberation. But, but that's a different kind of liberation we are speaking about. In this case, it is primarily aligned with economic renewal. And uh, so I think this, the idea of newness, of course, is a very old one but it is something which continues to be repeated. And of course, that latest version of that new India is what Modi has proposed. And in this case, we see a very, a new India, which is trying to somehow recover authenticity of a very, very far gone past. So it is a Hindu India in this uh, present version. So this is the newness, once again, that India is undergoing.
1: Yeah, and, and the and the uh, point you mentioned about it being a Hindu India is something we'll um, get back to talking about because you uh, show that very well indeed through a couple of different chapters. Um, but I just want to um, foray into what you mentioned about the Anna movement and um, what was really the Am Admi movement or the common man movement in India um, in the kind of late two thousands and early 2010. So, um, I wonder if, um, you could just briefly speak to what that movement was and, um, how, uh, so commonly when we would think about, um, branding campaigns, um, you know, targeted at investors and things like that, um, the Arna movement would not be, uh, obvious, Um, example of that. And yet you very counterintuitively, but I think critically tie that movement back to brand India and show how um, that movement, even though it was cast as this anti corruption movement, also had these pro entrepreneurship, pro free market, anti government kinds of imperatives built into it. Um, So yeah, that's a very interesting kind of knotted issue. And I yeah, I was just wondering if you could tell our listeners more about that movement and your uh, reading of it.
0: I think I I have to say that I begin with this uh, uh, by including Anna movement by going further back into 2007 and 2009 because of recalled, um, you know, in you know the times of India building uh, on Bahadur Shah Zafar Mark. Uh, in those days, there was a poster. Uh, on the top uh, which basically had a revolutionary fist. So people who know Times of India I think most people were very surprised that how come uh, it was as if uh, Times of India was rolling out some sort of revolution it had become headquarters of a revolution. Unfortunately I've lost that image because uh, my camera got lost uh, in those days. Now, that image is very instructive, and it basically ties to a moment of what I think of as deep anxiety. Now, this is the moment when India, on one hand, is galloping to the future, this fancy future which has been imagined. At the same time, there is this uh, anxiety that India is going to be left behind, that it is never going to make up to the same level as China. If you read newspapers in those days. They were all filled with the India-China comparisons that how we have not been able to realize our potential. So Times of India, actually, which is a free market paper, very, very liberal paper to boot, uh, they began bankrolling entire campaigns. And one of the first things they did was to uh, bring in Uh, Amitabh Bachchan, who made a video, which uh, still actually is very, very popular on YouTube, which is called Two Indias, which spoke about India, two Indias, one India which wants to rise, the other which keeps it pulling back. So there was this kind of anxiety uh, indeed. And that movement, uh, you know, that what began basically as a gesture to celebrate India and to propel it or push it further eventually turned into another campaign called lead india which identified the problem with leadership with political leadership in india that what is basically not allowing india to go ahead is basically the government and as i previously mentioned that a very like like something which people really believe in this community of policy advertising branding is that government is the main obstruction which we need to remove here. So Lead India, if you recall, was this campaign, which eventually became a reality show, uh, you know, to elect or not elect, uh, to find uh, leaders who could really help India realize its potential. So it begins from this moment, actually. Uh, In those days, I actually was very startled or puzzled because I could not understand that why would a newspaper, a private newspaper, why would they want to invest so much in something which is um, categorized as a social issue? So I called up uh, because I wanted to speak to the editor, uh, someone who used to write these editorials. And uh, when I called the exchange, they put me through to the marketing section. And so I was a little bit puzzled. I said, I'm sorry, but I want to speak to uh, the editorial, you know, the people who write these uh, every day, because this was a consistent campaign which had been started in 2009. And uh, this uh, man on the other side, he said, no, but you're, you're not wrong. You are Um, you're speaking to the right person because it's a branding department which uh, handles this. So I think this is what opened up that entire puzzle for me that uh, the people who are invested, of course, is government, but it is also the private capital and which basically allows us to see the kind of ever-shifting dynamic between state and capital. So in this case, this whole... Uh, you know, eventually it is 2011, um, you know, uh, that Anna movement begins. And just to l- l- add a little thing, which I, ha- I don't write in the book, is actually it is in Times of India's offices uh, that I was also introduced to Arvind Kejriwal, uh, because he was one of the people who was deeply involved um, in these, uh, you know, lead India Uh, campaigns or different kind of campaigns which were going on, all sponsored by uh, Times of India. So there is a thread here which has been missed out because we look upon what happened during Anna period uh, as something separate, but there is a line here which I'm trying to trace. And no wonder that everyone was speaking the language of liberation, that this is the second liberation. There was the strong anti-corruption element to it and one thing which i mention in my book is that uh, this uh, it was also activating a deep antipathy uh, towards uh, you know this merit versus quota debate uh, you know where um, you know scheduled caste or scheduled tribe candidates were looked upon as uh, basically the bane uh, that people who were that somehow that the sphere of the government itself was deprived of merit after reservations. So a government was not, you know, when people mentioned that uh, government is the barrier, government was not just government. This was also representative of the changing nature of Indian, um, you know, India itself, where uh, people from, like how reservation had actually brought in people from different castes who did not have access to corridors of power. So I think this is a very, like a complex field, but which comes together in this moment.
1: That's, I mean, the last point about, the, about reservations and how um, the inefficiency of government um, in India is not just seen as an inherent inefficiency, but also as a very... Um, you know, an inefficiency born out of basically pandering to lower castes, um, an inefficiency compounded by reservations and the private sector then being cast as a place free from reservation and a space of merit um, is is a very interesting and important phenomenon, which also leads us to um, all the ways in which your book um, shows that these two s- things which are seen as separate um, cultural nationalism or majoritarianism on the one hand and capitalist growth on the other hand um, are actually um, you'd say locked in a state of mutual indebtedness and I think that is a very very important idea in trying to understand India today um, so there's several chapters and several different ways in which you throw uh, in which you show throughout the book how um, brand India project, uh, Brand India projects this uh, modernity um, that is rooted in a decisively Hindu antiquity, um, and you also show how Indian capitalists in tra- transnational forums such as Davos um, position themselves as resistors, nationalist resistors of Western modernity, um, even as they're seeking foreign investment. Um, so I just want, yeah, I just wanted to hear from you more about. Um, all the different ways that identitarian nationalism and capitalist dreamscapes um, rely on each other and work together. This is of course
0: a very, very critical point, and I think one thing that I've been consistently trying to do is to look upon uh, the cultural political sphere together with the economy. And I think of course, people uh, you know look at economy as a very specialized area which only economists or people who do numbers, they can understand. It's very quantified. On the other hand, cultural, political is seen as something like miles apart. But what I've been trying to show or what I could see in the field was that, no, no, that they go so well hand in hand that one is boosting the other. And therefore, I think, uh, to get, I think some of these things you can specifically see in a place like Davos. Uh, where, as you have rightly pointed out, uh, Davos or World Economic Forum is the place where uh, every year, uh, you know, the elite of the world gather. And this includes the Indian elite. It's not just capitalists, but these are also policymakers, influencers, or important people in one way or or other. What you see or what surprised me was that uh, listening to the talks that how they were actually using the language which we are all familiar from anti-colonial literature. So it might totally confuse one if one did not know that these were some of, you know, the most powerful, most influential capitalist billionaires of the country who were speaking the language of uh, anti-colonialism. So for example, you know, when, if you recall uh, the news coverage when Tata's overtook, uh, bought some of these uh, companies, British companies uh, in England, or for that matter, when Mittal uh, Arcelor Mittal they bought uh, Arcelor in France, it was reported back in India as a kind of conquest, like getting back, you know, speaking speaking back to the empire in their own language. So of course it's a little bit mind-boggling because we know this entire. Uh, you know, this speak, like, how, how do we speak back, right? But here, what was being done was that uh, capitalists are using the same language of getting back or playing the same game in terms of buying companies or taking over, uh, you know, uh, mills or whatnot. So basically, what is happening here is, what the point, important point here is that uh, capitalists have positioned themselves as the saviors of the nation, the people who are fighting to restore India's glory or its name in the world. And that they do so by making India uh, even even greater or more prosperous. And of course, we know in reality, it doesn't happen like that at all. But this is the discourse, nevertheless, in which uh, state-capital relations are positioned in a very interesting way. Uh, some of the you know uh, conversations that I'm reproducing in the book, I remember there was one you know where uh, the government is being criticised, but at the same time the capitalists position themselves as the fuel which runs the country, and uh, that they are being hindered by the government. So I think this kind of dynamic is it becomes very visible, and therefore I think this thing about separating. The rise of uh, cultural nationalism, and in this case, particularly Hindu nationalism, on one hand, together with, uh, at the same time, you know, the speeded up reforms, I think that needs to be collapsed together as a single single phenomena.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a very, very important point we see so many times throughout your book, um, and, and causes one to question, you know, common assumptions um, or that it, it that it makes sense for to to have an image of somebody doing yoga, you know, with a poster that says "Incredible India." So, um, yeah, that that's a really important contribution, I think. Um, so as we kind of um wrap up talking about this project, I'm just wondering where are you going next? Um, I know there's a pandemic right now, and lots of people are um thrown off track, but um, what is it that you planned on working on next? And what is it that you are working on at the moment?
0: So basically, what I'm working on right now is to look at, uh, you know, like, I've set out to write a broader history of the transformations in the third world, as such, or the emerging Asia-Africa relations. And I'm looking specifically at countries like India and China, and the ways in which they are entangled with other countries in Asia and Africa. So what I've been doing is to look at the ways in which um, let's put it this way, that uh, there is this whole discourse uh, that uh, Chinese capital, uh, or for that matter, Indian capital is a form of neocolonialism which is uh, overtaking smaller nations in Asia and Africa. So I'm very interested in trying to find out that uh, what is it which makes these nations to continue to um, receive or actually quote foreign investments, which are not uh, Euro-American. So I, I have already done some of the field work, but of course, during the pandemic, I'm not able to do all that, that I had set out to do. But you can see that this notion that, that you too can become, you too can change your national uh, you know, uh, destiny if you become a trade hub. I think a country like Sri Lanka is especially interesting. It's a small country and uh, you know, sitting in the Indian Ocean and the ways in which they imagine themselves, I was fascinated with that. And how do you actually juggle with two major powers So in a way, so this project is again going into the broader geopolitics, economy, and actually the ways in which national, uh, you know, historical wounds are the kind of fuel uh, which continue to drive these economic processes. For instance, uh, a country like Rwanda, uh, which in 1994 saw an entire genocide taking place, and genocide has a very, very important role to play, or for that matter, let's say Bangladesh, uh, similarly, uh, and Sri Lanka has had an entire civil war uh, going on. In a way, capital is seen as something which can be the balm or the healing uh, touch that can help recover the nation. So basically what I'm doing is to look at the notions of recovery and how it plays into the larger geopolitics in the Indian Ocean region.
1: That sounds Absolutely essential Um, and I really look forward to seeing the project unfold Um, and I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come speak with us here about your wonderful book Um, and wish you all the best in the future. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much Aparnav.